My guest today is Professor Alva Noe. Alva Noe is a professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley. Alva Noe is the author of Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. This book was published in 2009. His first book, Action in Perception, was published by the MIT Press uh, in December 2004. Professor Alva Noe, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. I am delighted to be here with you. Uh, Alva, first of all, uh, uh, please tell us about yourself, your education and your areas of interest and research. I'm a philosopher. Um, my training has been in philosophy, but I quickly found that fairly early on in my philosophical studies and in my philosophical research that philosophy is, uh, is, a, is a topic, is a field whose questions arise everywhere. They arise if you're doing, if you're a politician, they arise if you're a physicist, they arise if you're a, a roboticist. And uh, in particular, they arise in the cognitive sciences, broadly construed. And, and I quickly became interested in, in questions about the nature of mind and consciousness as they arise um, in, in branches of research, uh, empirical branches of research into the, the nature of the human mind. I'm from New York City. I was born and raised in New York City. Uh, I got my Ph.D. F uh, from Harvard. Um, and I've been living in California for the last 15 years or so, um, engaging in, in research, which I consider to be really on the boundaries between philosophy and, and more empirical uh, branches of, of research. Mm -hmm. uh, before we look into a very interesting and radical idea that, uh, uh, about consciousness that you present in your book, Out of Our Heads, uh, let us first try to understand what is consciousness. Uh, this feeling of being awake and being aware of surroundings, uh, how would you define and uh, describe it? One of the things with a term like consciousness is you don't want to get too caught up in the, in the debates about how to define it. Because it's a term we all know how to use, but if you try to define it, you start, you start getting into arguments, and then you never, you never get going with, with sort of the substance. So it, instead of defining it, what I like to do is point, as it were, to some of the different phenomena of consciousness that we're, we're all aware of and see if we can get a kind of working grasp on the concept rather than trying to give a very strict definition. So in the book, I talk about the fact that the world around us shows up for us. That is, from the moment you, you open your eyes at the start of the day, you are not alone. You are in an environment. You are surrounded by things and walls and people and noises, all of which form a meaningful environment. Uh, and this, this environment saturates your thought. It shapes your feeling. It, 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 it influences your, your desires and your, and your emotions. So when I talk about consciousness, in the very, in a very loose and, and I hope rough and ready but useful way, I, I mean the fact that we think and feel and that the world shows up for us. Um, and now we can be more refined. We could, we could distinguish between consciousness as opposed to unconscious, as when I'm hit on the head and I'm knocked unconscious. We could talk about conscious in the sense of I'm conscious of the sounds of the intruder downstairs, sort of where we essentially mean something like perceptual awareness. But I'm interested in using consciousness to refer to that, that life of the mind which defines human experience. Mm -hmm. uh, in your book, you suggest that our inability to explain consciousness and the working of our minds is because the fundamental assumption that the consciousness arises in the brain is wrong. You suggest that consciousness is not something that happens inside us. It is something that we actively do in our dynamic interaction with the world around us. Please explain. Yes, well, um, this, this is absolutely the, the, the sort of the heart of my, of my positive proposal, um, that we've been looking for consciousness in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. You see, the idea that consciousness arises out of the brain is... I fear, actually, um, I mean, let me, let me, I want your listeners to be sure they understand what kind of person they're, they're, they're hearing interviewed here. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm coming at this from the standpoint of a commitment to trying to understand human nature. That is, trying to understand human experience as part of nature. I'm very optimistic that there can be 
um, something that deserves to be thought of as a science of human nature, as a science of the mind, as a science of consciousness. Or at least it's no part of my work to try to be anti-scientific mm-hmm. and, and say that the mind is somehow immune to the, to the, to the reach of, of, of science. The question is, what should the science of the mind look like? Now, most people in the cognitive sciences, I mean psychologists, cognitive neuroscientists, neurologists, tend to work with the assumption that there is inside of each of us a thing which thinks and feels and uh, is conscious, that that thing inside of us is the thing that we want to study. Um, now, the old-fashioned view was that that thing inside of us that thinks and feels and, and, uh, and that has experience, that, that that was something immaterial and ghostly and somehow spiritual. The contemporary view is that that thing is the brain. But what I contend, and this is, I mean, I mean this is an empirical claim, mm-hmm. I contend that we don't really have any better understanding of how consciousness arises out of the action of the brain than Descartes did about how consciousness might arise out of the action of some immaterial processes within us. Now, we could stop and say, well, we just need to keep looking a little bit farther. We just don't have the right theory. But what we need to appreciate is that we don't even have a back-of-the-envelope sketch of what a theory of how the action of the brain gives rise to consciousness might even look like. So my thought is, let's, let's see if maybe the reason we can't get the explanation is because we're looking for consciousness in the wrong place. Instead of thinking of consciousness as something that happens inside of us, think of it as something we do. And once you do that, once you think of consciousness as something that we do, something that we achieve, our focus shifts. Because now we're thinking not about goings on inside the head, but we're thinking about the situated activity of a living organism. And the situated activity of a living organism depends not only on that organism's makeup, although it does depend on that organism's makeup, it does depend on that organism's brain, but it does not alone depend on that organism's makeup. It also depends on the environment around the organism. I'm saying organism now because I I really mean this to apply across species, and it also depends on the social environment. Mm -hmm. So so, so maybe a way that I can try to um, make this more... um, helpful is by saying this. I said before that the fundamental question I'm interested in is how the world shows up for us. Here's an example. You walk into a room Mm -hmm. and there's some writing uh, on the wall, but it's in a language which is unknown to you. Um, Maybe it's in a script which is unknown to you. Mm -hmm. That the, the content of that, of that script on the wall doesn't show up for you. You, you, you might not even notice it. Um, If on the other hand, it is in your language, or in a language that you can read. Now suppose that what's actually written there is some offensive piece of uh, graffiti. Now it will show up for you as offensive, as shocking, as angering. You'll, you'll see it. it show, it's there for you. It wasn't there for you before. Now I think that um, what, what, how do we explain that difference in, in how that experience happens? To me, the thing that we want to focus on is the different skills and background knowledge that you had that enabled you to achieve, in this case, access to the content of the writing on mm-hmm. the wall. With those skills, it shows up for you. Without those skills, it doesn't show up for you. But skills always depend on context. You, know, you learn those skills, and those skills depend on the background social setting in which the skills get you know, in this case, the skills of literacy. A whole social world is presupposed by your being able to, to experience the world in that way. Mm. Um, and in this way, I shift the focus from an entirely internal orientation to a look at the whole animal in its, in its life world. But, uh, I mean, we can look at the same uh, phenomenon from slightly different point of view that uh, uh, to understand our surroundings, we use information already stored in the brain. We acquire this information by learning process 
and then we store this information in the brain and to understand our surroundings we use sensors to gather data such as light through our eyes and then we interpret the data by using the information already stored in the brain so why do we need something happening outside the brain while the data is coming in the brain and the information to interpret that data is also uh, uh, in the brain i think it may be useful mm -hmm. to contrast at a kind of um, fairly gross level mm -hmm. two different fundamental pictures that one might have of, of, of the human being. And, and then against that background, I'd like to sort of engage in this exchange with you about the proposal you've just made. Mm -hmm. So most, most people thinking about consciousness and cognition in the Western philosophical tradition tend to subscribe to something I sometimes think of as the submarine man view. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the brain is in the body in something like the way that a person might be in a, you know, a submariner would be situated in a, a single person submarine. And we can imagine the submariner ex exploring um, some, you know, remote deep water region that is, is sort of unknown to us. And in a similar way, we are situated in the world, and just as the submariner can only know what's going on in this deep ocean environment by reading instruments on the screen, so we only know what's going on in the world around us by exploring bits of information that our instruments record, and then we've got sensors that gather and deliver further information. Um, and on this picture, we really are kind of, our relationship to the world in which we find ourselves is like the relationship of, of a submariner or, or an anthropologist or a sort of a stranger in a strange land. We're, we're sort of uh, researchers in our home environments. Now, I just want to contrast that with a different view, mm -hmm. um, just, just for the sake of kind of giving a contrast. And this different view is of ourselves as already at home in the world. We are not like anthropologists arriving and discovering things anew and then using our powers of reason on the basis of sensory inputs to figure out what's going on around us, we are like soccer players uh, midstream in a football match who are not trying to decide whether this is a ball or not, but their orientation is on you know, making the goal and avoiding the, uh, avoiding the defensive players. Um, we are in full stream with the world, and our sensory systems, on this other view, where we're home sweet home, where we're, where we're not aliens, but where we're natives to this world, where we're uh, in immediate contact with this world, uh, this, this, the, sensory, the sensory organs on this view are not sort of delivering information to, to the submariner or to the brain, but they're rather enabling our ongoing active participation with the environment around us. Now, most... I, what the, 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 thing, the reason I wrote my... One of the reasons I wrote my book is that the Western scientific tradition at the moment seems to take the submariner view for granted and seems to think that this is, this is sort of what the best natural science teaches us about our nature. Um, what I want to suggest is that actually um, the best ways we have of understanding how we function, how our sensory systems function, uh, you know, what it is to visually represent the world and so on, uh, better support this other view. Um, so, so I want to reject the, the assumption that um, we're in the situation that, that your question presupposed. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think that a lot of uh, uh, um, uh, researchers in this area, they have made up uh, their mind that brain works like a computer. So we gather data, we store data in, uh, in, 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 in our brain, and then uh, when the sensors give us some, some information, we, 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 we fuse that information with the information already stored in the brain, and then uh, we, we, we understand our surroundings. They have made up their mind that, yes, brain works like a computer, and that's, that's the direction that they, are, they want to take their res research into. I would say that that is by and large, the, the, um, the dominant view. So we've got, we've got input to the brain, the brain processes the input, generating experience, producing representations and knowledge which can guide action, and then we've got action as output. And there's a sort of a, a simple sort of input-output uh, picture there. That's actually what Susan Hurley, uh, 
a late uh, philosopher who was a former colleague of mine called it the input-output picture. Um, I would say that something like that is the dominant view. And then, actually, the question you ask is is really a very interesting one mm-hmm. because this great enthusiasm in contemporary cognitive science for the brain might seem like a return, if you like, to biology and to, to, a, to a, a situating of the mind and uh, consciousness in the domain of a, of a biology, of, of the brain, of a, of, a, of a sort of a wet neuroscience. But in fact, as you rightly uh, indicate, I think that the way the brain tends to be understood uh, by contemporary neuroscience is ultimately as a kind of information processing computational system, a system whose, whose functional description is going to be rather abstract, rather computational. Um, so that in, a, in an interesting way, the, the contemporary focus on the brain is very much of a piece with the computer model of the mind. You see, you might have thought that a brain-oriented approach to the mind was at odds with a computer-oriented approach. Because the whole point about the computer-oriented approach is that it allows you to differentiate the software level of description of what um, the system is doing, uh, the operational description of what the system is doing, from any kind of considerations with the hardware. Because different hardware systems could all function and realize the same software systems. You know, whether it's running the Macintosh software or a IBM software doesn't really matter. It, uh, what matters is, from the point of view of the mind, is the software. And, and what's interesting, then, is that... Um, um, the the contemporary interest in the brain isn't really an interest in that which implements algorithms. Uh, it's it's an interest in the sort of algorithm structures that 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 are that are doing the work. So I'm sorry, it's a very long-winded way of saying that I I I'm in agreement with you that the current view is strongly influenced by a computational model of the mind. Uh, so is this hypothesis that you are presenting in this book, uh, is this going to be a uh, beginning of a war between philosophy and neuro, uh, neuroscience? You know, I'll remind you of the book's subtitle. The, mm-hmm. the subtitle of the book is Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. I don't view myself as representing philosophy against science. I'm trying to make a contribution to science and to, if you like, advocate what I see as a new, rather heterodox, but promising uh, development or strand of thinking in contemporary science, uh, which is sometimes called embodied cognitive science or situated cognitive science, where, where crucially the brain is absolutely essential to understanding the workings of human life and mind. If we want to understand our minds, we need to investigate our brains. But the crucial point that I'm advocating is that there's no reason to believe, except for bad philosophy, that the brain is the end of the story. The brain is is part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. The brain is necessary for mind, but it's not sufficient for mind. After all, brains are in bodies, and bodies are in living animals, and living animals live in environments, and there's a constant, continuous interaction between a living animal and its environment. And in a way, what I'm suggesting is if you want to understand how the brain works and if you want to understand the contribution that the brain makes to our conscious experience, then what we need to do is look at the active life of the whole animal in its environment. And that any view that attempts to say you can simply confine our attention to the brain alone as an abstract computational system is simply not going to give us the answer and in, the, in support of that, I can point to the fact that we have not yet been able to come up with the answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when you say that consciousness does not just happen in the brain, uh, you are not creating a room for a supernatural entity, perhaps a soul. No, not like that, no? Um, that is certainly not my, my aim here. Mm-hmm. In a way, my point is not that you know, consciousness... Here's what I'm not saying. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying consciousness doesn't happen in the brain, therefore it happens in an immaterial soul. Mm. Rather, what I'm saying is we're simply asking the wrong kind of question if we ask for where or what, uh, where does consciousness happen, or in what medium does it happen. Consciousness, I want to say, is more like a dance. Where does the dance happen? Mm 
The dance doesn't happen in the dancer's brain. It doesn't happen in the dancer's muscles. The dance doesn't happen in the dancer. The dance is an exchange between the dancer and the dance partner and the music and the environment. You can't even pick out the dance as a phenomenon without, um, without taking that more ecological approach. An example I give in the book, which, um, which I like, is imagine that we're asking ourselves, where is the value of the money? Well, the value of the money doesn't consist in something. You can't see the value of the money under a microscope by looking at the you know, uh, subatomic structure of the fibers that make up the, the, the dollar bill or the pound note, um, not because the, the value is some other kind of mysterious thing. It's simply the wrong place to look for value. The value of money consists in the way it is used and functions in, in, in a social system. And I want to say that just as, just as the value of money isn't the kind of thing that could be revealed under a microscope, so consciousness isn't the sort of thing that could be revealed under uh, you know, a brain scan. Consciousness is not something in the brain any more than the value of money is in the money. But that doesn't make it supernatural. Mm-hmm. So how is your uh, hypothesis uh, uh, being received by other researchers? Um, I think that the hypothesis is taken very seriously uh, by, by natural scientists working on these questions, um, especially uh, natural scientists who are interested in asking very fundamental questions about how consciousness happens in the brain. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that, that the scientists realize is that if you look, is that basically one neuron is the same as another neuron, basically. That is, it has the same basic structure and plan. And if you look at the brain, if you sort of imagine yourself beaming down like a microscopic creature inside the brain and looking around, you just see a lot of neural fireworks, a lot of snap, crackle, pop, a lot of neural activity. Mm-hmm. And there doesn't seem to be any signature in the neural activity that says this is a neural activity uh, that is seeing, and this is the neural activity that is smelling, and this is the neural activity that is touching. Um, and what, what I and, and my, my, my collaborators have argued is that, again, that's because the, 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 the character of consciousness doesn't stem from something the brain is doing. But if you start to look at that neural activity in the context of an animal's task, of an animal's activity, of the way the animal is dynamically exploring its relationship to the environment around it, then all of a sudden we can see patterns. Very interesting, what, what I call sensory motor patterns, that is, ways in which movement and action and sensory events in the brain all interact. And at that level, we start to see interesting, interesting patterns and I think this is an idea that is taken very seriously by neuroscientists and also by roboticists and artificial intelligence uh, uh, researchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so what are other entities, as you describe them uh, in your book, uh, as the components of the machinery of consciousness uh, beyond the brain? Well, in a way... My, I, want, I want our primary focus to be on um, the person mm-hmm. or the animal itself. And I want us to take a sort of an animal level, contextualized approach to the study of mental phenomena. Um, so let me give, an, give you an example. Um, you might approach the question of what we see like this. The world projects to the eyes, produces patterns of stimulation in the brain, and the brain produces a picture of the world. And then the question of what we see is given by what projects to the eyes. And the work of seeing happens in the brain. All the real action happens between the retina and the visual parts of the brain. Now, the problem with a view like that, I believe, is first of all, we don't understand how the the brain generates that picture. But second of all, it turns out we see much more than projects to the eyes. You know, I see the hidden parts. Like I see the partially occluded or blocked parts of the things around me. I experience them as visually present, too. And moreover, 
psychologists in the last few decades have done marvelous work showing that we fail to see lots of things that do project to arise. We fail to notice lots of information that is actually stimulating our, our retinas. So I think that the stimulation of the retina is neither necessary nor sufficient for perceptual consciousness. Mm-hmm. So what I want to suggest then is a different metaphor. Mm-hmm. Let's give up this projective metaphor. Let's give up the idea that the world projects to the eyes, giving rise to an image in the mind, and instead ask, how does the world make itself available to the animal in a place? That is, how does the world show up for an animal from a place? Where now we're not asking about a phenomenon that takes place between the back of the eyes and the back of the brain. We're asking, how, we're asking this about an animal's dynamic exchange and interaction with its environment. And then we can focus on such facts as that perceivers understand that their own movements produce sensory change. And that one of the things we keep track of when we explore an environment is the way in which our own movements in relation to the world around us produce sensory change. Mm -hmm. And so this story then depends on the whole animal in a situation and the properties, the landscape, the ecology of the environment. Um, And that's what I mean when I talk about the other components in the machinery uh, than the brain. The brain, the eye, the head, the body, the land, the environment, the light, all of this enters into a story of, about visual consciousness. Mm, you also suggest that habits are essential to our mental lives. Yes, that's, a, that's an extremely uh, important point. Mm-hmm. Um, we, one of the things that we do is we our environments are rich repositories of information about our environment. Uh, so think of a landmark. I can, I can know how to find my way home back to that hotel in that strange city without having a perfect map in my head of the whole city because I know that I go right at the church. Um, we use a church or another landmark uh, to help ourselves find our way about. Um, and likewise, if, I'm, if, I, if I live in the country, every time I take a walk through the, through the woods, my own, my own action beats a path on the ground. And then because I've beaten the path on the ground, I will be drawn towards that path again the next time I go because it will be the path of least resistance. So we have our, our environments themselves are in part conditioned by habitual action. And our environments support the performance of habitual action. Um, and um, what, one of the things I'm interested in is the way in which our cognitive lives require um, this kind of two-way causal interdependence between an organism and its environment that, um, that I call habit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you see the if we ask ourselves, how do I, as an animal, constantly compute and build up a representation of the world around me, what we find is that's a very daunting, that's a daunting computational task, that's a daunting intellectual task. Once we realize that we're habitual creatures that are in environments that support our habitual actions, we realize that we don't have to perform that task. Mm-hmm. We, don't have to, we don't have to constantly recompute uh, where we are and what we need to do because the world and our own habits uh, uh, guide and attract us. Mm-hmm. And what we, what's really important is to realize that if we didn't have that, it would be as if we'd have to begin every day as, you know, as, as if we were the first creatures. <laughs> every day we'd be like waking up and trying to figure out um, how, do I, how do I begin my life. But of course I get up, I put my feet on the floor, I walk to the bathroom, I flip on the light, I turn on the water... All of this stuff is done thoughtlessly, automatically. I'm, I'm absolutely habitually attuned to a certain stage, a certain setting. And it's only rarely that I find myself um, really having to make a choice or really having to think and stop and pause and make a real decision about what to do. So much of life is, is a kind of streaming flow that depends on a good fit between us and the world around us. And just one last thing I want to say to add to that is this is a crucial part of the importance of technology in our lives. Um, 
when I when I walk from one room to the next, I don't stop to contemplate how to use the door. The door, I just I just turn the knob and walk and, and swing the door open and go through. And I may not even recall or be that I've done so or be conscious of doing so while I'm doing it. I may be thinking about what I'm going into the next room to get. Um, good technologies are, if you like, occasions for habits, and uh, they enable us to do things that we couldn't do without those technologies. And in a similar way, habits allow us to leverage ourselves and get to places where we can pose new questions and ask new problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest today is Professor Alva Noe. Alva Noe is a professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley uh, and is the author of Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. Alva, how would you compare human consciousness with the other living entities? Uh, do you think that animals are also conscious? And if they are, what is the difference between our consciousness uh, as compared to their consciousness? I tend to, to think that um, the answer to that question is, is pretty straightforward. Um, obviously, uh, other animals uh, are, are conscious. That is, obviously, other animals experience a world. Or to use my phrase, the world shows up for them. Now, the world shows up for them differently than it shows up for us, and in part that has to do with the different things that animals know how to do as compared to we, what we know how to do. For instance, graffiti on the wall can show up for us because we can read, and no animal can read, so the graffiti is not going to show up for the animal. Um, on the other hand, um, animals can have very rich discriminatory uh, perceptual skills, that can allow um, features of the environment to show up for them that don't show up for us. You know, an animal can perceive the 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 the, um, the ripeness of of fruit or the suitability of a hole in the ground as a place to build a nest or or hide. Um, so, um, again, my my idea, my fundamental idea in a way, I haven't really said this to you yet, is that. The problem of consciousness is the question of how we achieve access to the world around us. Mm-hmm. And how we achieve access to the world around us depends on what we know how to do, what we can do. It depends on our skills. Um, and our skills, of course, in turn depend on, on, uh, on our brains, but also on the kind of environment in which we find ourselves and also on the kind of bodies we have. You know, monkeys can do things... Uh, uh, with their tails that we can't do because we don't have tails. And I can, do, I can do things with my hands because I have an opposable thumb that another animal cannot do. Mm-hmm. Um, but in principle, I don't think that there is a, a, um, uh, a sort of profound qualitative line between our mental lives and the lives of animals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what is the relationship between life and consciousness? Do you think that one day, non-living entities such as computers may become conscious? I can only speak somewhat speculatively about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, I am um, in agreement with the uh, artificial intelligence movement insofar as I don't see any in-principle reason why there cannot be artificial minds. Um, that is, I don't think mind depends on the nature of the stuff uh, that that uh, the organism is made out of, or that the or that the, the mindful entity is built up out of. Um, um, so whether you know whether a creature is made of, of biological tissue or some other kind of you know artificial synthetic robotic tissue, I don't see that as going to be a critical. Or important question. Now, that's there's a separate question though mm-hmm. of whether there can be mind which is not alive. For instance, it might be that the only way to make an artificial mind would be to make an artificial life. That is, there could be. I, I find quite persuasive the idea that there could be some essential linkage between the kind of autonomous, um, self-directing. Um, characteristics of living beings 
that enables them to 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 have minds. Um, but I'm very open to the possibility that maybe there could be artificial life forms as well. Um, th- again, I mean that as a sort of a theoretical possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you also uh, talk about grand uh, illusion hypothesis. Many people believe that there is a possibility that everything that we see around us is just an illusion. Uh, you do not agree with that. So uh, how would you convince me if I say that, oh, everything is just a grand illusion? Well, in the book, I discuss this question uh, at, at, a, at a certain uh, length. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what I'm interested in the book is not so much proving that the world is not a grand illusion, that is my my the 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 position I'm taking on is not the skeptic, who uh, thinks that for all I know, I'm I can't rule out the possibility that everything is a dream. And there's a long tradition in in philosophical thought for entertaining that kind of skeptical doubt, and the thing that makes that sort of skepticism so difficult to challenge, is that anything you can point to, that might be a reason for thinking you're not now dreaming. For example, the fact that you're now pinching yourself can be something that you're only dreaming that you're doing. I'm only dreaming that I'm pinching myself. So it's very, very difficult to, to use the philosophical jargon. It's very difficult to refute the skeptic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what I set out to do in the book. In the book, what I set out to do is to show that it's a terrible mistake to think that natural science supports the skeptic's problem, that natural science shows that uh, that the visual world is a grand illusion. Um, and a lot of times, um, scientists say, um, we, uh, you know, we know that we don't actually see anything around us. All we get is a pattern of irradiation of the eyes, and the brain then creates the illusion that we see things around us. Um, I don't think that that's a tenable, per, a tenable theory of how perception works for all the reasons that I've been describing. We actually can only understand how the brain helps us see by looking at the active animal in dynamic exchange with the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, we don't ever get ourselves into this position where sort of all that's real is what's going on inside the brain. We're, we're always already in this situation where we're looking at an animal's interaction with its environment. Um, it would be like, you know, I watch a lion hunting an antelope, and I say, well, really, everything is just going on inside the lion's brain. Um, I can't really make sense of what the lion is doing or what the lion's brain is doing without looking at it negotiating the savanna and the, 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 the herd of antelope that it's tracking. Um, and so in a way, what I really want to say is, come on, scientists have tended to take a certain old-fashioned set of philosophical ideas for granted. Mm-hmm. And then they turn and they say, let science move forward. We no longer need philosophy to help us with these questions. But really what they're doing is they're just assuming one philosophical picture, which is from a scientific point of view entirely, non, you know, entirely optional. Nothing makes that view mandatory. Do you agree that there is something mysterious about consciousness, or do you think that it is uh, just like any other phenomenon, and soon we will have an explanation? That's such a very hard question. I think, no. Consciousness is not just um, any like any other phenomenon, mm-hmm. um, because we are ourselves conscious, and what we're trying to understand is ourselves. Hmm. And um, you know, our nature and our own fundamental being is precisely what's at stake here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it's entirely possible that we'll need to make quite robust revolutions in our in our thought Mm -hmm. to understand ourselves Mm -hmm. however Mm -hmm. um 
I am myself um, actively engaged in that work, <laughs> and um, and I am hopeful that um, it is possible for there to be breakthrough and insight. Mm-hmm. And moreover, when I say that we're not, you know, the problem of consciousness is not just the problem; it's not just any old phenomenon that eventually will will be decided. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't therefore mean it's. Um, I wouldn't want to call it a mystery. I don't. I'm not really comfortable with that. <laughs> um, okay. Because I, I am actually trying to take you in, into that direction, that there is something mysterious about uh, uh, consciousness. Well, I would say this. My counter move to that is to say there's nothing more mysterious about consciousness than there is about life itself. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't find biologists ceasing their work on life because life is mysterious. Yes. No. Biologists find their problems and locate them, mm-hmm. and they study this and that biological process, and they can look at reproduction, and they can look at replication, and they can look at evolution, and they can look at the differentiation of species, and they can look at disease processes, and metabolic processes, and growth processes. Biology goes forward, and yet nobody has the perfect understanding of what it is about the um, uh combination of bits of matter that allowed the very first life to come into existence. Mm. This is still a mystery. Mm. Um, and don't let any other, don't let any biologist tell you otherwise. It's un- we don't know the answer. We sort of understand how organic molecules are made up out of elements which exist in the natural world, but um, you know, we don't know how to make life in a test tube. Mm. That's a very interesting fact about we, what we don't know. Mm. Um, and so I want to say that the situation of, of consciousness is very similar to the, to the, problem, uh, of, uh, the problem of life. Mm. Um, in one sense, nothing is, less, nothing is less mysterious than consciousness. We, you know, we, we, we see, we think, we feel, we, 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 we are, we are um, surrounded by and at home in uh, a world uh, of, of others and problems and situations and cars and baseball players and books and and radio programs. This is the world that we know. Nothing is nothing is less less problematic than that. That's the fact about us that we we have that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, how to explain it? Well, um, I'm taking a stab at it. Another very interesting question and uh, it seems that we don't have an answer to that question also what happens to consciousness uh, when we die do you have any any particular view on that well my my view about consciousness as i've said is that um is that it's something that we enact it's something we perform. It's something we achieve. It's something mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, in that sense, it's like a dance. Mm. Um, and um, insofar as the end of life is the end of performance, is the end of of action, um, then I'm very comfortable thinking that um, with death there is the cessation of consciousness. No, that's 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 a very interesting explanation. I'm glad I said something finally that uh, that that you find a little bit plausible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, and let me say that let me say that, um, however, because I view um, I mean one of the one of the aspects of of my view is that, the boundary between sort of the self and the world. You know, where do I stop and where does the world around me begin? Where does an or- what are the boundaries of an organism and the organism's environment? On my view, those boundaries are, are, are more fluid than we might have thought. That there is, that if you want to understand our conscious minds, what we need to do is sort of step back and look at the organism in a, a flow of participation with the world. And so consciousness stops when the organism dies, but so much 
of what makes consciousness possible, uh, the knowledge, the skills, the, the design, the architecture, the literature, the art, so much of what makes consciousness possible lives on after an individual's death um, that I do see not anything like individual survival after death. That's not my view. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I do think that um, I find that a consoling thought mm-hmm. that, um, that much of what supports the life that I live outlives me mm-hmm. and, for example, might allow my son, for example, to, um, to continue on mm-hmm. in, um, in something like uh, the path that I'm on. Mm-hmm. So there is a feeling that we contribute to the continuation of life. That's what you are trying to say? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, one way to, to think of it is um, our bodies are essential to our, to our ability to do anything. But we extend our bodies with technology. I extend my bodies with, we extend our bodies with tools. You know, we can use sticks for, you know, canes for walking and cars for driving and telephones for communicating across uh, great distances. And, in, and even language itself is, can be thought of as a kind of technology for interaction and communication between people. Um, uh, w- groups can organize themselves using language in ways that they could never organize themselves without language. And then writing becomes this further powerful application of the, powerful, of the power of language. So now I can use the power of language to influence people who are outside, of, beyond the reach of my voice. Indeed, beyond the reach of my life, because my writing will live after I die. And um, so we can, we can create, if you like, extended bodies. And these extended bodies, these extended action spaces, are communal and depend not only on me but, 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 but on others. Um, they, are shared, they are shared practice spaces. They're, you know, we have a name for this. We call it culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and culture partly makes us what we are. And culture outlives us each individually. So there is a sense, I think, in which we participate in something much larger than ourselves when we live. And our individual experiences are are made possible by our participation in that. And our participation changes. As you say, we make a contribution. We, we create new knowledge if we're, if we're fortunate enough to be able to do so. Or we, maybe we build a house, <laughs> right? We, we build a house and then, and then um, life can go on in that house in a way that it couldn't go on without that house. Uh, um, I mean, we're not so different from ants in this way. Ants develop the colony and the colony is much larger than the individual ants. The ant wouldn't be what it is without the colony, and the colony wouldn't be what it is without the contribution of all the millions of ants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, and I'm not really talking about immortality, mm-hmm. but I think I'm getting at some phenomena in the vicinity of the kinds of concerns people have when they think about immortality. Uh, one final question. Uh, in next, uh, say, 20 to 30 years, uh, what are the major developments or breakthroughs that you envisage uh, in the study of consciousness? That is a fabulous question. Um, I, I, I think that, um, I, I hope that what we'll see at that time is the, the settled uh, acceptance of a more contextual study of human mind and experience. We'll, we'll use technologies of, of study of the brain and brain imaging and all of these new technologies, but we'll use them as part of a more um, uh, integrated uh, look at the way in which the brain is simply one element in a larger system. Um, and what will emerge from that is a is a cognitive science is a is a science of consciousness which is not not truly speaking just a neuroscience it will be a kind of more integrated science of uh, a more holistic if you like science of of human and also animal experience um, and one one benefit of this, let me just m- m- connect this to a sort of a practical thought. Mm-hmm. 
um, once we realize how deeply integrated we are with our world, once we give up the idea that we're sort of like submariners alone in a single-person craft, only communicating with each other by radio and only interacting with the environment through um, our instrument panel, um, I think we can appreciate the importance of many social and political and um, uh, international events in new ways. For example, think how many people migrate, um, are immigrants, um, who leave one culture where they're at home in one language and either through choice or, or necessity find themselves in a, in a radically different uh, culture and place. Uh, from my standpoint, those kinds of changes, that kind of an uprooting, is a kind of trauma. Now, that, I don't want to melodramize it, so, melodramatize it. Sometimes that trauma is just fine. It's a, it's a wonderful life's history. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's damaging and traumatic. Mm-hmm. And whatever it is, it's changing. A person is changed by that experience um, in, a, in a deep way. Um, and on my approach to sort of human nature, that's exactly what one would expect um, because we are not islands insulated from the world around us. We are like, we are like bushes that are, that are overgrown and interwoven with, with other bushes and bramble and uh, what could be more, more um, natural than that we depend crucially on the soil and the and the surrounding trees and sunlight and shade for our for our individual flourishing. So in this way I hope that a more integrated, contextual, situated cognitive science will also present a more humane conception of ourselves and our place in the world. Alva Noe, professor of philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley, the author of Out of Our Heads, Why You Are Not Your Brain and Other Lessons from the Biology of Consciousness. Thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you very much for your interest in my work. It's, it's been a delight. Thank you and bye-bye. Bye-bye.